Leaders are not all cut from the same cloth. In the world of business, big companies eat little companies. CEOs may not be about putting their own interests ahead of others in the company. But at least one man has bucked the trend of job self-preservation at all costs. Ernest Bud Miller, once president and chief executive officer of Arbita, a real estate company, closed regional offices, reorganized departments, and cut his workforce of 2,600 in half. In the process, he turned a money-losing company into a profitable one. But despite the trimming, Miller believed one layer of fat remained, so he resigned. I couldn't justify me to me, says Miller. I couldn't look at the people I let go and say I applied a different standard to me. Every fiber of my person wanted to stay, but professionally, this was the decision that had to be made. The move eliminated one of the two senior jobs of the company. The chief operating officer of Arvita became the chief executive. Miller, age 53, gave up an upper six-figure salary package. No one believes this former Marine with the Harvard MBA will be on the street for long. For his part, Miller hopes he'll soon be helping a company restructure. That's sacrificial leadership, isn't it? You have to admire a leader who's humble enough to apply to themselves the same standard they've applied to other employees. Leaders are often entrusted with weighty responsibility. Those who bear the burden of livelihoods of many other workers are especially worthy of our admiration. Paul began the second chapter of his first letter to Timothy. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. No, kings and all those in authority, do we pray often enough for our leaders? As I scroll through Facebook several times a week, I probably see something critical of the current American president. Less often, something critical or mocking of our Canadian Prime Minister, but it happens. Yet, even if we don't agree with their respective stances, Scripture still urges us to be praying for our leaders. It's even more remarkable that the Apostle would write this when you consider the circumstances back then. Paul was writing about A.D. 63-65. to 65. Nero was Roman Emperor from A.D. 54-68. to 68. Now, I don't know if you know a little bit of Nero. Five years into his reign, Nero arranged for his own mother to be murdered. So that's the kind of guy we're dealing with. Nero seems to have loved to make a public show. A Wikipedia article notes, he made public appearances as an actor, poet, musician, and charioteer. In the eyes of traditionalists, this undermined the dignity and authority of his person, status, and office. His extravagant empire-wide program of public and private works was funded by a rise in taxes that was much resented by the middle and upper classes. Near AD 64, about the time Paul was writing, the great fire of Rome burnt about two-thirds of the city, lasting nine days. Now there were rumors Nero arranged for the fire to be set, although he apparently was out of town at the time. Guilty or not, it didn't help that he seized the opportunity to rebuild Rome in his image, including a new palace for himself that took up eh, about a third of the city's space. Tacitus notes that 
Nero blamed Christians for the fire, persecuting them by turning them into human torches. Eventually, toward the end of his brief career, Nero fled Rome, was tried in absentia, and condemned to death as a public enemy. By comparison, our current political leaders don't seem so bad as that, do they? Yet Paul urges prayer for kings and all in authority, even then Emperor Nero. What you worship affects who you become. What you focus on, what you give your attention to, comes to influence heavily the kind of person you are. Psalm 115 says, But their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but not speak, eyes but they cannot see. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. You become what you worship. You become mesmerized by what you idolize. The God of the Bible is eminently worthy of worship. We see his loving kindness and faithfulness most clearly reflected and demonstrated in Jesus Christ, his Son. Today's passage, Paul camps on three key attributes of God. First, God our Savior. Verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Savior. Greek soter, S-O-T-E-R, Savior, Deliverer, Preserver. How was Jesus announced at the time of his birth? 2.11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's Christ the Lord. Something crucial about this association of, with saving is wrapped up in the very essence of Jesus' name, Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. The angel told Joseph, Matthew 1.21, she'll give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will, what? save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means, Savior. Last week, near the end of chapter 1, Paul highlighted this function of Christ as one snatched from the flames himself. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. God's worship by the Greeks tended, not surprisingly, in the midst to act like humans, motivated by jealousy, appetite, pride. But the God of the Bible wants to be known as our Savior, one who submits himself to seek our benefit. In Jesus' parables about God in Luke 15, a shepherd saves a lost sheep, a woman finds a coin, a father welcomes back into full status a prodigal son. Stories of saving, reclaiming, restoring, and significant effort and cost. Fifty years ago last Sunday, July 21st, 1969, some of you will remember that, Neil Armstrong became the first person to walk on the surface of the moon. This past week I was watching a news item about the remote Australia satellite radio telescope that helped relay those memorable images. The article noted that these days the same radio dish scans the sky for signs of extraterrestrial intelligence. Well-known scientist and author Carl Sagan commented in a PBS documentary about the new optimism that there is life elsewhere in the universe. He says, it's nice to think that there is someone out there that can help us. Unfortunately, that implies that for Sagan there is no God. So his hope of help from other beings is a blind hope. A hope that assumes other beings exist and that their race will not be infected by the same depravity that's evident in human endeavor, and that they would be interested in helping us. 
God is our Savior. Second, God wants all people to be saved. Some people may have this image of God as a, a contrary old codger whose hand is full of thunderbolts, ready to hurl at unsuspecting mortals, but that picture is more from Norse or Greek mythology. Read how God's word describes him in said 1 Timothy 2.4. God our Savior wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. All people. That would be God's ideal desire. The human responsibility and depravity and guilt enter in and make that unattainable from the Garden of Eden on down. God's preference would be that all be saved. We read back in the Old Testament, prophet Ezekiel relays, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Also, Peter writes, 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repent. What goes wrong then? Why aren't more people saved? Generally, the human heart is turned against God. Only by His sheer mercy does He breathe His transforming spirit into us and wake us. Open our inner eyes. We're talking about in the song there. Uh, open our eyes let us see you. Uh, God gives us an appetite for relationship with him, an appetite we didn't have before, and a desire to welcome forgiveness and reconciliation through Christ. <coughs> Election is a mystery beyond the scope of this sermon. The Bible also reminds us, 1 Peter 1, 2, that God's elect have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. It's a divine mystery involving both God's sovereignty and human responsibility and freedom. Another aspect of our unusually gracious God is that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. Verse 6, Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. The word ransom is that for the customary price paid to redeem a slave that would otherwise be sold at the market. Uh, just humor me for a minute. Take your arm and just put your arm up in front of you and make the sign of the cross. Okay, like that. Okay, so you've got the cross shape. Now make a dollar sign. Okay, make a dollar sign like that. Now make the cross. Now make a dollar sign. Okay, and just think like the, the cross is the price God paid. God loves you that much that he gave his own son to redeem you, to bring you to himself. The cross is the cost. Paul describes thus the one mediator between God and men. Now, have you heard of mediators involved in labor negotiations? Generally, such mediators are careful to maintain their neutrality. They remain aloof lest they start to show bias to one party or the other. In the case of Jesus as mediator, he's all in. He gives his own life to pay the ransom needed for forgiveness of our sins. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, For Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Peter put it, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, 
so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. His, wound, his wounds hurt so you could be helped. Pastor of a church in Boston met a young boy in front of the sanctuary carrying a rusty cage in which several birds fluttered nervously. The pastor inquired, Son, where'd you get those birds? The boy replied, I trapped them out in the field. What are you going to do with them? Well, I'm going to play with them, then I guess I'll just feed them to an old cat we have at home. The pastor offered to buy them, the lad exclaimed, Oh, mister, you don't want them. They're just little old wild birds who can't sing very well. Pastor replied, I'll give you two dollars for the cage and the birds. Now this is back in the time when two dollars was worth quite a bit. The boy consented, okay, it's a deal, but you're making a bad bargain. The exchange was made, and the boy went away whistling happy with his shiny coins. The pastor walked around to the back of the church property, opened the door of the small wire cage, and let the struggling creatures soar into the blue. Next Sunday, he took the empty cage into the pulpit and used it to illustrate Christ's coming to seek and to save those who, like the birds, were destined for destruction. The difference was that Jesus had to purchase our freedom with his own life. He gave himself as a ransom for us. We're seeing that this unusually gracious God of the Bible, Savior, wants all people to be saved, and Jesus gives himself as a ransom. When you truly believe in and worship a God like that, it changes and shapes who you become. Here are four ways Paul highlights in this passage how Christians ought to be shifting in a new direction compared to how they used to be. First, prayer, not pushiness. Can you say that? Prayer, not pushiness. Where the world's naturalist, Darwinist mindset is all about striving, impacting the gene pool, survival of the fittest, the believer's mindset is stayed on God. Abiding in spiritual communion with the Father through prayer. 2.1. I urge them, Paul says, first of all, requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Also 2 verse 8. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Verse 1. You notice there are four types of prayer mentioned. Three involve asking, requests, prayers, intercession. One involves expressing gratitude, thanksgiving. Paul urges us to be lifting up holy hands in prayer, verse 8. Prayer should come as naturally to the Christian as breathing. We're not a closed system. We walk in the Spirit, Ephesians 5.25. We remain or abide in Jesus as He abides in the Father, John 15.4. His Spirit of sonship within us prompts us to cry out, Abba, Papa, Romans 8.15. So 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Apostles' advice, pray continually, without ceasing. Remember my motorcycle helmet a few weeks back with the built-in communication headset? I could be riding along and answering the phone or using the intercom with another biker. Christians have that same built-in capacity for prayer with God, wherever you are. A lifestyle of prayer helps us in tight situations remember to rely on God rather than just our own strength and resources. We don't have to push through stomping on others' feet as if we're just doing it on our own. It all depends on us. 
prayer focus helps us not get suckered into, verse 8, anger or disputing. Being contentious, demanding our own way, we can trust God to work things out fairly. Remember, we're discussing the proper posture for prayer. The first said that one should be on one's knees with head bowed in reverence to the Almighty. The second argued that one should stand with head raised, looking into the heavens and speaking to the face of God as a little child. The third spoke up and said, nothing about these positions, but I do know this. The finest praying I've ever done was upside down in a well. <laughs> Second, godliness, not greed. Say that. Godliness, not greed. Verse 2, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Paul uses this word godliness eight times in 1 Timothy, more than anywhere else in his writings. The word implies a good and holy life, a special emphasis on its source, a deep reverence for God. Remember, you become what you worship. You start to imitate that upon which you fixate. If you're focused on Jesus, you'll start to become more like Him, more holy and godly. Is that your life goal? By contrast, culture's advertising and competitiveness prompt us to try to grab all you can because you only go around once. As the bumper sticker puts it, he who dies with the most toys but something deep within us senses there's got to be more to life than just heaping up possessions. What pocketbook can buy can't satisfy soul needs. Verse 9, Paul cautions women not to get caught up in dressing in gold or pearls or expensive clothes. The advertising jingle says, diamonds are a girl's best friend, but they don't prevent heartache and breakups. Lasting relationships have to be built upon much more. Greed fuels ambition, which can lead to overwork, lack of quality time together, and affairs with co-workers. A reporter interviewed Lynette Fromm, the girl who took a shot at then-President Gerald Ford in Sacramento, and who was also a member of the infamous Manson family. Uh, Lynette Fromm said the thing that attracted her to Charles Manson was his philosophy, which was, get what you want, whatever you want it. That is your God-inspired right. I guess not. Godliness, not greed. Third, peacefulness, not promise. Can you say that? Peacefulness, not promise. Verse 2 again. That we may live peaceful and quiet lives. Verse 8. Without anger or disputing. When you're happy in Jesus, getting your sense of being valued and significant from your Heavenly Father, rather than from your possessions or prominence or achievements, you don't have to have a high profile in society. You're content to be one of the, the quiet in the land. You don't have to make a big name for yourself. You're just happy to be serving others, helping them thrive, giving them a boost up. It was heartwarming this past week to see Ryan O'Reilly, a Stanley Cup champion, St. Louis Blues, interacting with his 99-year-old grandmother. <coughs> she even got to ride in the bucket of the fire truck with him during the parade. Love doesn't just glory in its own accomplishments. It, it lifts others up that might otherwise have gone. 
Good deeds, not blitz. Say that? Good deeds, not blitz. Advertisers may try to catch your eye with shapely models and scanty cladding, but Paul hints that true beauty is more than just skin deep. It has to do with our character. Note the emphasis on good deeds and propriety two times here in verses 9 and 10 and 15. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Verse 15. The womb be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Frankly, girls, if he's the kind of guy who's only going to be attracted to you because of the way you look, how much skin you're prepared to reveal, that's not the kind of guy you really want. The word translated modest means well-arranged, becoming. Wrapping up. We're blessed to know and serve a holy God, gracious, self-giving, sacrificially concerned for our welfare. Such a good God rubs off on the kind of person you and I are becoming. Several times Paul emphasizes holiness. Verse 3, peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Verse 6, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. Verse 15, women are continuing faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Easton's Bible Dictionary defines holiness with regard to Christians as consecrated to God's service, and insofar as they are conformed in all things to the will of God. So to be holy is to be like God, unmarred by anything sinful. James 1.27 Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In James Version, to keep himself unspotted, from the world. Many of you know this past week I've been recovering from extensive burns incurred by the foolishly standing too close to a burn pile after dosing it with a couple of liters of gasoline on a hot summer day. Thank you for your prayers. The nurse remarked, I'm a good healer. Praise the Lord. I was very careful to try to protect any open wound areas from infection. Didn't want any flies landing on my burns in case they decided it was a good place to lay eggs. So I was hypervigilant to keep the wounds clean, spotless, so they would better heal. It was hard for this person with Scottish blood to not reuse dressings, even if they looked almost clean. <laughs> Regarding holiness, J.D. Pentecost wrote, a surgeon who selects a scalpel in the operating room rejects the scalpel with a minute spot of defilement on it as readily as one that was severely defiled because even the smallest spot means the scalpel is defiled and cannot be used in surgery. A thing is sterile or defiled, clean or unclean. A person is holy or unholy. God is not concerned with degrees, only with the absolute. How much dirt does it take on the scalpel to make it unsterile? The smallest particle, either clean or not, by degrees. And, uh, just to uh, illustrate this a little bit further, I need two children volunteers, some of the older kids. Can I have a couple guys come up and help me here? Come on up. 
Got one? Need a, a second one? Okay, here comes another one. Okay, good. All right. Remind us your names for, for me, for the congregation. Ethan and Jake. Thank you, Ethan and Jake. Okay, so I have here uh, a sterile pad bought straight from the pharmacy, which is excellent on wounds. So uh, let's see now. Jake, can you open that one up there? Okay, can pull it open up the top. Pull that apart there. Try to keep it really, 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 really clean as you open it. Yeah. Nice and fresh and clean and sterile means there's no, you just hold it like that for a sec. Okay. Now, here I have a mosquito from the bathroom windowsill, and I have a fly from the floor below my kitchen window. So, Ethan, if you can take the mosquito and the fly, they were already dead, no animals were injured in the presentation. <laughs> You take, you just dump them into the, dump them into the nice clean sterile pad there. Okay, good. They're all there. Okay. Now, can you take the pad and kind of, can you just kind of squish it together and rub them until they're really nice and smushed in there? Okay. Okay. All right. So I'll kind of smush around. Okay. Now, on my arm, I still have some wound that's kind of half open in that. All right, so that see that one right there. So do you think do you think I should take this and I should put it on my my wound? That would be good, would it? No, what you're feeling right now, that in the pit of your stomach, that revulsion, that disgust, that's how God, a holy God, feels about sin. It doesn't take a lot of sin. It's any sin that's contrary to God's nature, evil, wickedness. God cannot tolerate. I don't want to put that on there. Thank you guys for your help. So, holy, unholy. It's a little bit like being pregnant. No one is ever just <clears throat> a little bit pregnant. You either are or you aren't. Are we holy? We need God's constant cleansing. Close with 1 Peter 1.15 and Hebrews 12.14. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness showing yourself to us as a good, gracious, and loving, and faithful God. Thank you for the, the dollar sign of the cross that Jesus, you gave the price so we can be brought to God. Thank you for your cleansing. Help us to walk in that, Lord. Help that to flavor our interactions with people so we don't get caught in anger and disputing. Help it to uh, just bathe our heart in your love so we don't have to go in for greed and all shiny, piling up shiny stuff. Lord, thank you that we are enough people.